All right, well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, actually the site pastor here at Brader Way. It's so good to be with you all. Thank you to everyone joining us online or from downtown or Fitchburg or one of our other venues here at Brader Way. Of course, you in the room. And special shout out to my family room people, whatever site you're at. We don't always get a, a shout out, but you guys are there managing the kids. So um, hope you guys are having a good Sunday as well. Um, we're gonna keep the beginning just really brief and quick because I'm super excited about this Sunday. I don't know if you knew this, but this is like a super special day. I might even go home, like have some friends over, eat some good food later. Why? Glad you asked because this weekend marks the 12th anniversary of the Green Bay Packers winning Super Bowl 45. Who's with me? Woo! Come on. Wait, what did you think I was going to say? Oh, yeah, right. There's some other game being played tonight too, right? Uh, but seriously, how great was that game back in 2011? Uh, well, maybe not so great if you're a Steelers fan. Sorry, Pastor Collier and our Gospel Fusion venue. We'll see if he shows up to work today. He knew I was going to be talking about this. Or anyone else, sorry for your loss. Because the Packers hung on to win to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 31-25. to It was a pretty close game all throughout. And I, like, I was so anxious and nervous that I didn't eat a single thing at the Super Bowl party I was at until finally the confetti fell on Aaron Rodgers and company as he was holding on to the Lombardi Trophy. Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday, just so good, right? Now, I get the sense that not everyone shares in my excitement. Maybe you're like a Bears fan, or you're not even like from Wisconsin, and so you don't recall this, or you don't get as excited about it. So today, I cordially invite everyone that's not a Packers fan to be an honorary Packers fan for the day, right? So like, get your cheese hat on the way out, um, and if that's not enough for you, the Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice. So thank you <laughs> so much for sharing in this moment with me. Now, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I used to be uh, like an avid Packers fan. I still love the Packers, but so that's right. I've got like all these things to commemorate that day. A pennant that we used to hang in our apartment, um, a newspaper, the front of the Wisconsin State Journal from the day after, right? Aaron, I don't know if you can see it. He looks a little younger there, but we won't talk about that. Uh, let's see, uh, a hat, it's a, it's a little dusty. You should probably clean that up. Um, all right, this is a cool one. My dad got my brother, himself, and I uh, Super Bowl Clay Matthews jerseys. Clay is one of my favorite Packers players of all time. He was on that team. We'll just set that right there. Let's see. Oh, yeah, a Packers DVD so I can relive the whole Super Bowl run anytime I want to. Just have to find my DVD player, right? And then, all right. This one's my favorite. It's a signed picture of Clay Matthews Jr. Well, not actually signed by Clay himself. It was actually signed by me and my friends that watched all of the games together. Um, but still, still cool, right? Like, don't, don't be jealous. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. And one, one last thing. The Packers Super Bowl t-shirt. It still fits 12 years later. Yes, thank you. Let's hope that it still fits 12 years from now. Just an awesome day. All right, here's a picture from right after the game. Shout out to Kyle and Andrea Ebley from our Fitchburg location. Uh, I think Kyle's leading worship today, so love you. Hope you're doing well. They packed everyone into their apartment to watch the game together. Um, and my wife, Amy, and I had just gotten married about 10 months earlier. So in that moment, I was like 
95% sure that the Packers were going to win every single Super Bowl for the rest of our marriage. Obviously, that didn't happen, right? So this year, uh, anyone that's followed the Packers for any amount of time uh, over this past season could give probably a bunch of reasons why we won't be watching them in the Super Bowl and while we'll be watching the Eagles defeat the Chiefs. That's my prediction. Sorry to the Chiefs fan in the front row. <laughs> what? All right, we got some Chiefs fans. But it has me wondering, like, how, how do some teams, how do some players make it to the pinnacle of their profession while others, like our Green Bay Packers, flame out along the way, maybe even hit rock bottom? And maybe you're thinking, like, I don't care about sports. You're, like, kind of paying attention through all of this, right? But the same thing is true of organizations and companies and people in different professions. Like, how do some make it to the very top while others fail or just flame out along the way? And I know the answer to that, it's probably pretty complicated. A little bit of luck is involved, but I want to give a, a simple response to a complicated question, and that's this. Because of the small things. In, uh, in the event of a, a Packers or a football team, all these things over the course of training camps and going years of draft picks and all sorts of things, they all add up, but it's small Things. At an organizational level, there's all sorts of decisions that are made to hire certain coaches and not others, to make certain draft picks and not others, to, uh, to hire and, and sign certain players and not others. And then, of course, there's hundreds of individuals involved in the organization, and all of their decisions accumulate over time. The coaches to call certain plays and not others, to call a timeout or not, or to go for it on fourth down or to kick a field goal, and then, of course, the players themselves who make the plays, they make the decisions on the field. And while no single decision probably led to their making it to the Super Bowl and winning the whole thing so that we, we make ridiculous posters of them and, and hang them in their honor to remember them for years to come, all these things added up over time. But, of course, the opposite can be true as well. We take steps in the wrong direction, those decisions can accumulate over time as well. So that's what we're going to see today in the story of the Israelites. They took seemingly small steps away from God as they hardened their hearts toward him. But over the course of years, hundreds of years, they added up to the point where we see today they reach rock bottom. And it's a cautionary tale for us because the same thing can happen in our own lives and in our own churches. So today we continue in our Live This Book series to remind us where we've been over the past 20 weeks or so and where we're headed in the future. Check this out. The story begins with a God who has a plan. He crafts a beautiful world for himself to be his domain and he populates the world with beings called humans, creatures who resemble him. And God invites these humans into partnership with him by giving them the authority to run the world for him. But alas, these humans don't want to run the world for God. They want to run the world for themselves. So they rebel against God. And the result is that the entire world falls into darkness, corruption, and death. But this is a determined God. He doesn't give up. He calls into existence a new people called ancient Israel. They are to be God's people, 
and God invites his people to partner with him on the mission, to live out God's character in order to attract the rebellious world back to him. But alas, God's people don't want this mission. They want to be like every other people, so they rebel against God, and God destroys ancient Israel and sends his people into exile. Again, this is a determined God. This time, he sends his own son, named Jesus, into the created world. Not just to be a human, but to be the king. Jesus recruits a people, those who are tired of this broken world, those who are yearning for a new way of being human. And Jesus dies to reconcile this new people to God and to each other. With his death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus creates the new people of God called the church. This new people, drawn from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, are united in Jesus and are empowered by God's Spirit to accomplish the mission, to live out God's character in order to attract the rebellious world back to Him. The story ends with this promise. A day is coming when Jesus will return and He will restore God's kingdom on earth. A kingdom populated by God's people, those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus as their king. And this broken world will be restored, filled with light and life without end. All right, so at this point, we are about halfway through the story in the video. God has just brought his people back into the promised land. Out of Egypt, he's saved them, he's rescued them, and he's continuing this mission to build this kingdom, build this people that will be unique from all of the other nations and that would draw people to him. And so God gives them kings who would help to guide and to lead this kingdom, one of whom is King David, whose family line, God says, will always be seated on the throne. But uh, many years later, after the death of David's son, King Solomon, because of political unrest and Israelites' disobedience toward God, God actually splits the kingdom in two. So we have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And over and over again, we see the Israelites continuing in worshiping other gods and, and worshiping idols and continuing in their evil and injustice. And so over and over again, God sends prophets to, to warn them of where things could be headed if they don't get back on track, if they don't turn back toward him and away from those things. But over and over again, the people continue to ignore the prophets until eventually it all just comes crashing down. And this hope, this dream of a kingdom of a people that would draw the, the nations to God seems to be all but over. Because in 722 BC, God hands the Israelites, the northern kingdom of Israel, over to the Assyrians who come in and take them away to foreign land. That's the passage that we'll look at. So turn with me, if you have a device or a Bible in front of you, to 2 Kings chapter 17. We're going to read verses 7 through 20. It's kind of a long passage, and we'll skip ahead a couple times, but let's just read it in one big chunk to, to get a sense for what's happening here. Verse 7. 
It says, all this took place, that is the Israelites being carried away to Assyria or to other foreign countries. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord, their God, that were not right. Skip ahead to verse 11. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. And then don't miss this. This is going to be key throughout the rest of this. <clears throat> they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. Verse 17, it says, they sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They're engaging in, uh, in child sacrifice. And then finally, verse 20, Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. What a difficult passage, right? These verses, they're, they're just overflowing with reasons why God is holding them accountable, why he's sending them away from his presence. But a, a couple things rise to the surface that we've seen in previous weeks. The first one is idolatry. Matt talked about this a few weeks ago. They rejected their covenant relationship with God and instead worshiped other gods and created idols. And then the second is injustice. We've talked about that over the past couple of weeks. They were doing evil things in secret, adopting the unjust practices of the nations and even engaging in child sacrifice. And as verse 15 a moment ago pointed out, in their idolatry, in their injustice, they've become just like all the other nations. They're no longer distinct as a people of God. And so finally, it's just all become too painful. God has had enough after hundreds of years of this. And so he sends his people away. The northern kingdom of Israel, again, is the first in 722 BC. He hands them over to the Assyrians who carry them away. And then second is the southern kingdom of Judah. Over the course of about 15 years, the main uh, deportation happening in 586 BC, there's, there's three different deportations that happen, and Judah is sent away, many of them to Babylon. And again, they're scattered, and they see Jerusalem and the temple just completely leveled to the ground. And so even as Adam and X, even as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, they were sent to play from the waste, from the from the place where they dwelled with God in a unique way, so too are the Israelites now being sent away from the presence of God. If they wanted to have nothing to do with him and to become just like all the other nations, well, God is granting them their wish. And the story has literally come full circle. Abraham began here in Ur, and then the journey takes them back into the promised land, and now they're once again in Babylon, back where this all started, but in the hands of their oppressors. It's a sobering 
story. And we're going to think about how, like how did this happen in just a second. But I don't want us to miss just sitting in the tension of this story for just a minute because there are some hard questions that come to mind, things that I've wrestled with in my own journey, maybe that you're thinking or wrestling with too, even as we read that. So let's look at just a couple of them together. The first one is this. Is God bloodthirsty? Or maybe to say it a little bit differently, is he like just sitting on the edge of his seat waiting for us to slip up so that he can punish us? For some of us, depending on the faith background that you come from or maybe the church that you grew up in, when we read stories like that, that's the kind of image of God that comes to mind. That he's just on the prowl looking for the first moment where someone slips up and then he's going to pounce. But as we read the scriptures, we see that that's not how God operates, even in the Old Testament. Because don't miss this, how many years do we think have passed from the time of the gold calf incident as the Israelites have just come out of, uh, out of Egypt and, and God has rescued them, but then they start to, to worship this idol. So how much time has passed since from then until the time where they're exiled to these different countries? Well, scholars, uh, they debate a little bit the timing of the exodus and, and when the gold calf happened, but it's usually within about 100 years. So we can conservatively say that it's been at least 500 years until the northern kingdom is exiled by the Assyrians. And it's been over 700 years until the time that they're exiled to Babylon. 700 years. That's a, that's a really long time. So just to kind of give us a scope of how long that would be for us, this is just kind of funny to think about. Here are some things that happened 700 years ago. 700 years ago, the first eyeglasses were invented, right? Styles changed it a little bit since then. That's probably a good thing. 500 years ago, Michelangelo completed the statue of David. Uh, only 400 years ago, Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, only about half the time that we're talking about that God waited and speaking of Super Bowls, it was 37 years ago that the Chicago Bears last won a Super Bowl. That's like an eternity. I wasn't even alive then. The patience of those fans. And the Minnesota Vikings, well, the last time that they, oh, they've never actually won a Super Bowl, right? So, like, can you imagine being a Bears or a Vikings fan, though? Like, the patience that they've had to, yeah, they've had to wait just for some modicum of success. All right, now that I've alienated everyone from the Midwest, this is great. But all joking aside, 700 years. 700 years of God patiently waiting, holding out hope that maybe his people would turn from the things that they're engaged in and turn back toward him. 700 years of sending uh, prophets and, and warnings of, of enduring kings and corruption and all the different things that are happening, but they don't turn. They continue in their ways. See, this is the thing. God sending people away from his presence is about a failure to live out the mission. His partner on the mission, the Israelites have betrayed him for hundreds of years. They're no longer serving the mission. If anything, they're pushing people away from who God is. They become just like everyone else. And so they need to go away. All right, here's the second question. When bad things happen to us, is God judging us for something we've done? According to the book of Job in the Old Testament and then later Jesus, 
Suffering is never proof of wrongdoing. We have no idea why someone suffers. We're not privy to that information. And we're not supposed to like guess or judge why God works in a certain way or why things happen to people. Like, is it God doing something or is it just the nature of living in a world that's corrupted and is not as it should be? But I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a room with someone who's struggling with, like if they had just followed God a little bit more closely or prayed a little bit more or not engaged in that one sin that one time that maybe, just maybe that thing wouldn't have happened to them or their family member or their kid. But you guys, that's not how God works. When I was a senior in high school, my lung collapsed twice in the course of about three weeks. In the medical world, they call it a spontaneous pneumothorax, which sounds like something out of a Dr. Seuss book, right? But it just means uh, that it can spontaneously happen for, for no reason. And so the first time that it happened, um, I felt just a pain in my chest and in my back and a little bit of a shortness of breath. And so the next day, went to the doctor. And I'll never forget what happened when he walked into the room to give me my diagnosis. He like put the x-ray on the screen backwards because my left lung had collapsed so much that it pushed my heart closer to the center of my chest that at first he couldn't tell which side was which. And a couple of weeks later, after getting out of the hospital, I was cleared to resume physical activity. So I was just like shooting free throws in our high school gym, getting ready for my senior year basketball season when I felt it happen again. So I went home, took a shower, packed my bags and said, mom, gotta go back to the hospital. And while I hesitate to even share that story because I know it pales in comparison to what many of you are going through right now, for 17-year-old me, a high school student, it was absolutely devastating. I remember just feeling angry. Angry at the world, angry at God. Like, why was he punishing me? What did I do? God, what did I do to take you off that you would allow this to happen to me or make this happen to me? But almost 20 years later, I can confidently say that the last thing God was doing in that moment was punishing me for something. See, he was using it to draw me to himself, to soften my heart. Because it was about six months later as I went off to college that I became a Christ follower for the first time. And I think that incident was a big reason why. Because I was headed in the wrong direction, making bad decisions. I was without hope. I was depressed. And God used it to soften my heart and to show me my need for a hope and a love and a Savior far beyond anything this world could offer. Some of you, as you sit here or as you watch online, in this season of life, it feels like the air has been taken out of your lungs. It feels like you're at rock bottom right now. And so I simply want to remind you to remind us that God is near to the brokenhearted, that he himself shares in our sufferings. And while I know it just sounds cliche, it sounds trite, but maybe the thing that God is doing in this season isn't to punish you, but he actually wants to draw you deeper into intimate relationship with him. Even just saying that out loud, I know it feels cheap, it sounds cheap, because as I look at some of you, I know your stories and how deep 
the pain. I think of some of you at different sites and different venues and the things that you are going through. Death after death in your family or chronic uh, pain that just hasn't let up, or crippling anxiety, or other mental health issues, life just hasn't let up. And if that's you this morning, I just simply want to say, look, I don't have any magic answers that'll make it all go away or make it feel better, but I think God wanted to remind us this morning and to remind you that he loves you, that he's for you, he's crazy about you. And if you have been united with Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you have been united with Christ and he has a firm grasp on your life and no matter what you're going through, he will not let you go. So try to take hope in that today. All right, how are we doing? Hopefully we're seeing that the people of Israel had a unique, particular covenant relationship with God that they neglected and abused for hundreds of years. This isn't like a knee-jerk decision from a vindictive, angry God to one person's sin or one person's failure. But we still haven't talked about how. How did all of this happen? And maybe you kind of see where we're going with this. What does all of this have to do with football teams and the Packers? It's because of the small things things that added up over the course of hundreds of years that eventually led to their downfall, to their destruction. But I think the thing is we all, we all have opportunities every single day when we wake up to choose either life or death, to choose to soften our hearts toward God or to harden our hearts toward God, to choose to try to pursue holiness and righteous, becoming the kind of people that God has created us to be, or to go in the other direction and simply become like everyone else. Small choices that add up over time. And while I know that probably most of us, we don't fear like being exiled from our homes. I've never once woken up in the morning fearing that that might happen. But I also know that that has actually happened to some of the people in this room and some of the people watching. It is a very real thing that can happen. But for most of us, it's not something that we fear. But what can happen to us is just like the Israelites, we become dulled. We become a shadow of the people that God has created us to be in his image. We become alienated from God. We, we get off track, we lose the mission, and we go in a different direction. And the path that we take, the decisions that we make, they can have consequences. So what are, kind of, what are some of the things I'm, I'm talking about? What are some examples of that? Um, well, as individuals, it could look like slowly becoming desensitized or more and more okay with the things... Uh, like sex and nudity in, in the things that we watch and look at and, and choose to, to watch on TV. It started with like one small thing. I'm sure it's fine this time, but then after a while we realize we've become desensitized to those things and we're just like everyone else in our consumption of things like pornography. Or maybe we like begin just to cut small corners on our taxes or in our business or, or just becoming slowly less generous, taking steps to like not give as much because we, we need it in these uncertain times. And eventually we realize that we've become just like everyone else, no longer radically generous in the way that God has called us to be. 
Or one last one, we could become desensitized to injustice, to violence, to the war in Ukraine. There's just so much of it going on that eventually we start just to turn a blind eye toward discrimination toward LGBTQ people or Asian Americans or African Americans or other marginalized people. There's just so much on TV that eventually we just, we got to take a step back. We got to ignore it. And eventually we realize that we've become not the kind of people that God has called us to be full of radical love and compassion and mercy who are pursuing justice. But one small step at a time, things that used to harm us or harm other people, they don't anymore. Things that used to bother us don't anymore. And eventually we find that we've drifted and we're no longer the people that God has created us to be. You guys, I know that this is so heavy. This is a heavy talk. This is a heavy message. If you're like here for the first time, just know that things aren't always this heavy. You caught us in a unique just place in the story with where we're at. But I don't want us to miss the gravity of this story and the situation. Because the reality is that the same thing could happen to us as individuals. The same thing could happen to us as a church. Because as we follow the theme of God judging his people, of holding them accountable to the mission throughout all of the scriptures, we see even in the closing pages of the New Testament that God is is warning people about ways that they're prone to get off track. In Revelation 2, Jesus says this to the early church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So just like the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus is giving this faith community and he gave other faith communities warnings about ways that they're doing so well, they're doing so good, most of them, but there's ways that are entering in small things that are starting to pull them off track. And the reality is if they don't start to get back in the right direction and walk close with God again, then they might not be around much longer. Because the reality is, faith communities, we see this in in Revelation, when they get off track, when they lose the mission, they're not guaranteed to be around forever. Why? Because if they've lost the mission, if they're no longer distinct as the people of God, well, they're no longer useful for the mission. God will find someone else and they don't need to be around any longer. But Blackhawk, I'm not... (laughs) I'm not trying to to say all of this stuff to like scare us or to make us feel a sense of guilt or condemnation. Because the reality is I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in many ways. I, we, our leadership here, we are so proud of you and your radical love and generosity and compassion. I could tell story after story. And even me personally, I've been a part of uh, several different churches around the country, great churches, but I can honestly say that I've never been more proud to be a part of a church than I am to be part of Blackhawk Church on mission with all of you. I love this community. But the story serves as a cautionary tale about what could happen if we start to take small steps in the wrong direction and get off track.
So what kind of church, what kind of community will we be as we continue into the future? Because can you imagine, like, if we all were pulling in the same direction on mission together, not just a few of us, but everyone using their gifts and serving and and being a part of what's happening here, can you imagine what could happen? Thousands of people at Blockhawk Church praying for our church and this city and the world. Thousands of people like giving gener- generously to, to local partner organizations and to those in need. Thousands of people offering words of encouragement to people in their community group and their Bible study and loving and serving their neighbors. Thousands of people daily spending time with Jesus in the scriptures being changed and transformed by him. Can you imagine what could happen? See, I'm just one individual person taking small step after a small step toward God. But all of us together, collectively, there's no telling the impact that we could have. So where do we go from here? I think this story is an opportunity to identify the ways that we are prone to wander or ways that we have already gone off track and then to repent and to turn in the other direction. So we name those things. Maybe there's already right now things that are coming to your mind as you hear this message. And then we turn. We take small step after small step after small step toward the Father, asking him to soften our hearts and to make us into the people he's created us to be on mission for him. There's no getting around the fact that this story is a brutal plot point in the narrative of Scripture. But can I remind us of something, something that we sung about earlier, at least here in this room. God is still a God of mercy and compassion and grace, even in this story. The story is heavy, but it's not hopeless. Pastor Charles is going to talk more about that hope next week as we begin to make a major shift toward the New Testament. But even here today, this morning, we have an opportunity to remember that this is not the end of the story. We gather every single week, after all, as Christ followers to worship the risen King Jesus, who himself bore the cost to free us from our propensity towards sin and death, that our hearts could be softened and that we could be joined with him. And so in just a moment at all sites and venues, we have an opportunity to remember what he's done for us as we celebrate communion together. And what I, what I love about communion is that it's an opportunity no matter how deep the suffering or how many injustices we see around us or how bleak the situation, I'm reminded that God is good, he's faithful, he shares in our suffering. And I only need to look at the cross to be reminded that all of those things are true. But I'm also reminded that there is hope because he did not stay on that cross. He rose again from the dead, freeing us from the power of sin and death, making us alive with him. We've been joined with Christ. So even in moments where we feel like we're drifting or we've already taken steps in the wrong direction, the Holy Spirit is alive in us. It's indwelling us. He's working in us to convict us, to lead us, and to empower us to take small step after small step toward the Father asking him to soften our hearts and make us into the people he's created us to be on mission for him. 
So in whatever ways we need to, as we continue in just a few moments with communion, let's all take a step toward the Father this morning, whether a big one or a small one. And may it be the first of hundreds of small steps, small choices to choose him and to be on mission with him as we go from here. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then the host in each venue will lead us in a time of communion. God, though this is a hard story today, we are so grateful that we get to see more of the story. That Jesus, in the midst of our propensity to wander, to to choose other things to be just like everyone else, that God, you stepped into that, you shared in our suffering, and you made us alive with you, that we could live a different kind of life, empowered by your Holy Spirit, on mission for you, different from the rest of the world. And so God, even through communion, as we remember what you've done for us and we share in this meal together, would you continue to change us and to transform us? Make us into the people that you've created us to be and empower us to, whether we feel like we're at rock bottom or or we're maybe just like starting to slowly drift or somewhere in between that God, you would empower us to take small steps toward you. Would we run to you? Would we choose to follow you and be on mission with you? God, we love you. We're thankful for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.